Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 298. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What weather man, we are right in the middle and it's the first time for years of a kind of a little bit of a heat wave going on in, in England and it's fantastic man, doing the ironing outside, if anyone's seen that Facebook page, well I, see, I was doing the ironing, I put the ironing board up, there you go, come on full of men, <laughs> couldn't find the starter motor for it. Anyway, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a little promo for Amy H. Sturgis. Then straight into the main fiction, Mars Opposition by David Brin. And then we have a special giveaway by Jeff Carlson. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. But that is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up, we have a little promo by Amy. College is starting soon, so book your seats. Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am Dr. Amy H. Sturgis, and in the fall semester of 2013, it will be my privilege to offer a new online 12-week course for the Mythgard Institute at Signum University. That course will be called Sherlock, Science, and Ratiocination. Students from around the world will be able either to take the course for master's credit or audit the course for the love of it. They will also have the choice to attend my two 90-minute lectures per week live or download them after the fact. Online interaction with fellow students and with me will be possible in a variety of ways. The intellectual sibling of science fiction, born of the same parents, the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution, is what its father, Edgar Allan Poe, called Tales of Ratiocination, 
Poe created the first scientific detective, C. Auguste Dupin, who in turn paved the way for one of the most enduring and beloved literary characters of all time, Sherlock Holmes. This course focuses on Poe and Conan Doyle and how their works blended scientific method, mystery, and imagination to create the modern literature of detection. We will consider why Sherlock Holmes remains an often revisited and reinterpreted character with remarkable resonance in our own time, and how the genre he helped to create and the literary descendants he inspired continue to question the idea of order in our universe and how we know what we think we know. In this course, we will encounter excerpts from the works of early detectives. Read the three stories that introduced literature's first fictional detective, Edgar Allan Poe's C. Auguste Dupin, and study the first great novel of detective fiction, *The Moonstone* by Wilkie Collins, before turning our intense attention to a wide sampling and deep reading of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes novels and short stories. The course will end by exploring the BBC's current Sherlock television series and considering what the science of detection means in the 21st century. We hope you will join us in the fall of 2013. Visit MythGuard.org for more details. Thank you. Ian, I'll put a link on the email if you want to go over there, and don't forget as well. Amy is part of SofaCon. When I say part of, got three quarters of SofaCon. Amy's doing everything. I've just had the questions over. Amy's just compiled all the questions for the science fiction quiz of the century. Geeks Guide the Galaxy up against SF Signal. So if you haven't got a ticket for that, there is a, still a few left. There's so actually, I'm just, I could nearly say it's sold out. There's probably about ten tickets left, if that. So come along if you please try and grab a ticket. That would be fantastic. But You know, it's it's. I'm just looking forward to it now. Just gonna because we're going on holiday afterwards. If you remember last week, on the 28th is SofaCon, and then that's it. I'm shutting down the engines for a couple of weeks or three. <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> sub gin and tonics <laughs> on the beach in in Minorca. There you go. Right then, main fiction, and it is Mars Opposition by David Brin. I'll give you a little heads up on Mr. Brin. David Brin is a scientist, speaker, technical consultant, and world-known author. His novels have been New York Times bestsellers, winning multiple Hugo, Nebula, and other awards. At least a dozen have been translated into more than twenty languages. His 1989 ecological thriller, Earth, foreshadowed global warming, cyber warfare, and near-future trends such as the World Wide Web. A 1998 movie directed by Kevin Costner was loosely based on *The Postman*. Brin serves on advisory committees dealing with subjects as diverse as national defence and homeland security, astronomy and space exploration, SETI and nanotechnology, future predictions and philanthropy. His non-fiction book, *The Transparent Society*. Will technology force us to choose between freedom and piracy? Deals with the secrecy in the modern world. It won the Freedom of Speech Prize from the American Library Association. As a public scientist futurist, David appears frequently on TV, including most recently on many episodes of The Universe and on the History Channel's Best Watch Show Ever: Life After People. He's also been a regular cast member on The Architects. 
His PhD in physics from the University of California at San Diego followed a master's in optics and an undergraduate degree in astrophysics from Caltech. He was a postdoctoral fellow at the California Space Institute and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. A hardcover graphic novel, The Life Eaters, explores alternate outcomes to World War II, winning nominations and high praise in the nation that most loves and respects the graphic novel. He lives in San Diego County with his wife, three children and a hundred very demanding trees. There's also, I'll put a link on as well too, because David sent over a link to his video for his new novel, Existence. And it's like, see, it's a cracking video of like a book trailer. So do have a look at that as well. The story first came out in 2005 in Analog Magazine. And if you didn't know as well, Mr. Brin goes back to Oral Delight number three when we played one of his stories there, right back at the early days. This story is narrated by the one, the only, Mr. Dave Robertson. And those of you who know, Dave was the host of Protecting Project Pulp a while ago, but busy man. I just knew, do you know what I mean? I just knew Dave was too busy to stay on Protecting Project Pulp and had some very exciting things to go. And I haven't actually spoken to Dave in, in a long time there, so thoughts are with you, Dave, there, sir. I hope everything is all right. But like I say, what a narration, man. Oh, man, excellent. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present Mars Opposition by David Brin. When the Martians came, they proved unlike anything we imagined. Elegant, dauntingly tall, and gleamingly enigmatic, they spilled out of a bizarre craft that appeared at dawn, gently and quite suddenly, on the ELV launch pad at Cape Canaveral. We called the thing a ship, for lack of a better word. In fact, it more resembled an outcrop of ochre desert stone, a jumbled rock pile that had been yanked from some faraway canyon and somehow deposited in swampy Florida. Nobody would imagine that it flew, except that a dozen eyewitnesses swore they had seen it descend, swiftly and almost silently, at daybreak. For about an hour it just stood there, creaking and settling next to the gleaming derrick where unmanned space probes sometimes get hurled skyward atop pillars of flame. Pebbles and reddish dust, plus an occasional boulder, showered onto the concrete apron, covering scorch marks left by past fiery launches. Despite all the grit, we could tell the newcomers were far beyond primitive rockets. Finally, from what appeared to be the mouths of several caves, creatures started emerging. At first sight they seemed amorphous, hard to make out against the rocks and slanted dawn, slithering down slopes of glittering dust. But their forms changed before our eyes. Adapting to this environment, they seemed to unfold as they descended, rapidly gathering themselves upon slender, bipedal legs, until several dozen spindly, multi-jointed humanoids finally stepped onto the concrete apron. Like newly emerged butterflies, all of them turned toward the sun for a few minutes, preening and stretching tall, revealing long torsos covered with translucent greenish skin that bulged in a pronounced hump across both shoulders. Soon each hump opened, spreading into a pair of diaphanous fans, like parasols or wings, that seemed to firm and gain shape under full daylight. The chief color is that same as chlorophyll, 
commented Slade, using a spectrometer she had ingeniously yanked from the Chang Ho spacecraft, hasty moments after the aliens were spotted. Those wing-like appendages must be collectors. See how they face the sun? These critters make their own food supply as they walk around. Following her lead, several other Cape scientists were setting up instruments, adapting them to close-in view and peering excitedly at the newcomers, comparing notes until the first government officials arrived. "'Why here?' someone asked. "'Why not Washington or the U.N.?' "'Wasn't that where aliens always came? "'In the movies, that is. "'To the seats of deliberation, policy, and power? "'Or else dark country highways, "'intent on grabbing and probing another class of folks? "'It dawned on us that perhaps these visitors "'had different values than movie producers.' other priorities than the UFO fairy creatures of our hallucinations. It fell upon Assistant Director Cole, the highest official present, to step forward nervously as the Martians approached. Tall and imposing, they did not appear to be armed, though many of them carried what looked like scrolls, silvery and covered with some kind of jagged writing. That seemed auspicious, at least— Perhaps they bore gifts of wisdom from the stars, or technology, cures for diseases, engraved invitations to join the Galactic Federation, or perhaps an ultimatum. Gotta hand it to Cole. Spreading his arms in a welcoming gesture as the leader drew near, he spoke hoarse, but clear. "'Welcome to Earth. On behalf of the people of the United the first of the tall aliens stopped in front of Cole as expected, but other members of their delegation kept going, moving past the two of them, spreading out, heading for the dismayed crowd of spectators. Hello, the first one interrupted the assistant director in English. The alien's voice seemed rich in tones of metal, soot, and stone. I seek information. If the first visitor said more, we were too distracted to listen. For as the rest of the gangly creatures fanned out, each of them chose a different person in the throng of onlookers to approach. One stepped right up to Slade, ignoring her instruments and looking down at her from a great height. "'Hello. I seek information,' this one said, reiterating the leader's words, sounding like the grinding together of aged rocks." I offer fair compensation if you provide the datum required. It reached into a pocket that had not been there a moment before, an opening that appeared along one rib of that long torso. The alien's hand emerged, thrust forward, and opened almost under her nose. Slade stared at glittering objects, nuggets that had to be gold, a jumble of faceted slivers that could only be diamonds. I believe you find these of value. I will trade them for information. Slade blinked a couple of times, glancing to see that every space visitor had chosen a different human to approach, from among those brave enough to remain when the delegation divided into a free-for-all. Though many fled, some of us stayed, rooted by curiosity, more powerful than fear. A strangled sound was all Slade managed at first— as she stared at the small pile of treasure, then back up at the gangling space visitor. Finally, she murmured, "'What... what do you want to know?' With uncanny agility, 
and without disturbing a single gemstone, the alien used its other hand to draw forth and unfurl one of those glossy scrolls. Gripping aside with two opposable fingers, it sent two others snaking toward a column of text. I seek the human being whose name appears here, eleventh on this list. Peering over Slade's shoulder, I saw that the scroll bore a column of names, much longer than ought to fit. Through some technological wizardry, the words, all written in a serifed Roman font, multiplied in size wherever my gaze happened to fall. Microprinting became instantly readable. I recognized several names, including one the alien pointed to. Bruce Murray. Yes, the Caltech planetary scientist, former head of the Jet Propulsion Lab, and president of the Planetary Society. I nudged Slade to get her attention, but she ignored me, hurrying to accommodate our guest. You want to meet Bruce? Why, he's right here at the Cape, advising some new show for the Discovery Channel, I think. They were filming over at Pad 1A, but with all the commotion, I bet he's already nearby. Thank you. Here is your payment, the alien answered, pouring the small mound of nuggets and gems into her hand. Instantly, more appeared. I will pay you further to guide me directly to Bruce Murray. I had already spotted the man in question. Still handsome and charismatic after spending his entire adult life, more than half a century, helping to push humanity upward, outward, beyond Earth's cradle. As a matter of fact, Bruce Murray happened to be speaking to a different visitor. The creature was even taller than the one facing Slade. But Bruce stood undaunted, with no apparent ill ease, peering at another of the silvery scrolls that alien held in front of him. With a smile, he turned and pointed west while uttering a few words. When the newcomer tried to hand over a fistful of treasure, Bruce shook his head, refusing payment for a simple act of courtesy. This had an unexpected effect. The alien in front of Bruce Murray seemed to get angry, or at least insistent, thrusting the glittering pile once again. Meanwhile, still ignoring my nudge, Slade was already accepting her second fee. "'Come on,' she told her alien. "'I'll introduce you to Bruce.' All around us, a hubbub of confusion intensified as the space visitors behaved in a manner never seen in film depictions of first contact. After speaking to some individual for a few minutes, and then handing over payment, each of the aliens simply turned and walked away. Several took the road leading west, toward Kennedy Space Center headquarters and the town beyond. Others headed cross-country, on diverging paths. Two aimed straight north into a Florida swamp. "'Sorry if I offended you,' I heard Bruce Murray tell his own visitor, one of the last remaining, trying to ease the creature's agitation. "'I said I'll be happy to help you find Louis Friedman. I'd do it out of simple hospitality. But I see that it's culturally important to you for there to be some quid pro quo, some fair exchange of value.' So how about you pay me with information? Like, where are you from? What's your name? Why are you looking for my friend Louis? He stopped as our alien approached in long strides, interrupting. You have been identified as Bruce Murray, whose name appears on this list, 
it said, as Slade and I hurried to catch up. The taller creature turned, its parasol wings fluttering in an angry display that flashed from green to spirals of deep red. "'You are interfering in a legitimate transaction,' it told Slade's alien. "'This one named Bruce Murray has demanded specific information as payment in exchange for a service already rendered.' Turning back to Bruce, the taller alien said, "'Your terms are satisfactory. Here are your answers.' I come from the planet you call Mars. My name translates to Wandering Stone. In my language, it is pronounced... We never got a chance to hear the name in its native tongue, because at that moment, the shorter Martian, the one who had spoken to Slade, took out a slim gray object and shot Bruce Murray dead. Commotion does not begin to describe what happened next, as most of the humans took flight amid screams of terror. That part briefly resembled some tawdry sci-fi movie, though none of the remaining aliens seemed at all interested in pursuing. Soon, just a few of us were left, stunned, watching in riveted silence as two green aliens confronted each other over poor Bruce's smoldering body. There came a furious exchange of irate noise between them, you didn't need translation to guess what was being said. "'You interfered in my legitimate transaction,' rattled Wandering Stone, drawing forth a weapon of its own. "'I offer compensation,' the shorter Martian seemed to answer in the same grinding dialect, keeping its wings folded while swiftly presenting a handful of small objects. I noticed that they weren't gold nuggets or diamonds, but little cylinders— probably vastly more valuable. Wandering Stone paused, contemplating the pile. Then, in a blur, the gun was gone and the pile snatched up. Deal concluded. Turning, Wandering Stone fixed a hard, unblinking gaze on me. I tried not to quail. I seek the direct heir of Bruce Murray in order to fulfill my obligation. I must finish answering the questions that he asked— then I will need further guidance to find Louis Friedman. I am willing to pay. Meanwhile, Slade was confronted yet again by her own Martian. You performed excellent service, guiding me to Bruce Murray. Now I request further information. I will pay you to direct me to the next person on this list. When the scroll was thrust again before Slade, she let out a yelp and ran. I was not far behind. During the week that followed, we all experienced a weird kind of helplessness as almost fifty tall, iridescent green Martians spread out across the United States. The government tried to keep everyone calm. After all, this didn't look like an invasion, not by any standards we could recognize. No giant battlecraft hovered over our cities, demanding surrender under threat of mass annihilation. There had been one profoundly violent act, true— but every other phase of this interplanetary encounter, before or after, had been courteous, personally forthright, and profitable to whichever individual human being got attention from an alien. That aspect, their fixation on making a fair deal, seemed fundamentally reassuring at some level. Business, after all, is business. So the death of Bruce Murray must have been some kind of aberration, a misunderstanding. 
poring over footage from the moments leading up to the shooting, pundits and scholars puzzled over what inadvertent gesture or word Bruce must have performed to provoke that sudden, violent response. Remember how many times human beings misread each other during the age of European exploration, one historian reminded. And those were just different cultures within the same species— Something is going on here, something we haven't grasped yet. And as the weaker ones, we had better figure it out real soon. Within hours, every copy of Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond was plucked off the shelves by earnest readers. You couldn't even buy a copy online. Meanwhile, the visitors fanned out most of them striding with amazing speed northward, out of the Florida peninsula, into America proper. Whether cross-country, by highway, or through a dense urban center, the specific path seemed at first to make no difference. Only direction, each one seeking a single-minded goal. Most people quickly got out of their way, though gawkers and the passionately curious shouted questions whenever a Martian loped by— tailed by frantic journalists and hurriedly assembled teams of marshals assigned to protect these alien visitors from our more unbalanced citizens. Almost fifty little swarms, like fast-moving and erratic movie stars chased by fans, paparazzi, and bodyguards. The marshals had to work in relays in order to keep up. All of that soon changed, however, when a motorist stopped abruptly near one of the creatures, flung open his passenger door, and offered a ride. For a price. This caught the escorting marshals flat-footed, as the alien quickly agreed, handed over a fistful of riches, tucked away its solar collector wings, and folded its long legs inside. It took just moments. The pickup truck sped off. Nobody could think of any legal reason to stop it. Frenzied phone calls brought in helicopters to keep the truck in sight. But soon, somehow, word spread to the rest of the visitors. Wherever they were, other tall aliens abruptly headed for the nearest road and began sticking out their thumbs. They must communicate, I thought at the time, pondering how well-coordinated it all seemed. They must be very disciplined and cooperative. It just goes to show how easily a guy can fool himself. Word spread quickly among humans, too. While a majority of citizens kept back in fear, there was no shortage of bold drivers suddenly eager to pull over. Hitchhiking Martians paid well for rides. And for information, always seeking some person listed on one of those scrolls. Despite a rising sense of public unease, it wasn't hard for each alien to find someone, a shopkeeper or some passerby with a wireless link, willing to do a quick internet name and address search and then point the right way, often with a printed map. Well, those diamonds were top quality. Anyway, the government was loath at first to interfere. This offered one way to find out why they had come and who they were looking for. No Martian asked for secrecy, so most of the information providers cashed in twice by swiftly telling everything to the news media. In a matter of hours, we knew more than 40 names. What would you do if you heard on TV that a Martian was looking for you? After what we all witnessed at Cape Canaveral, acute interest focused on those who were asked for. 
a diverse group, they shared one common trait, a passion for spaceflight. Only a few were scientists or engineers or NASA officials. Some were school teachers or accountants or mechanics. But all believed in human expansion and adventure in the cosmos. Not much to go on, though I began to wonder. Any normal person, upon hearing that an alien was coming, would prudently stay away from home, especially after what happened to Bruce Murray. But, as I said, those being sought weren't exactly normal. Most of them had dreamed of first contact from an early age, cutting their teeth on science fiction tales. Several, in fact, reacted to the news with excitement, hurrying toward their aliens, eager to meet them halfway. By coincidence, the first two of these zealots reached their rendezvous within minutes of each other, thirty-one and a half hours after the ship from Mars arrived, several hundred miles apart. "'Are you Donna Shirley?' a green visitor asked, near Huntsville, Alabama. "'Yes, I am,' answered a well-known space engineer, grinning and holding out her hand. Whereupon the creature shot her dead. "'I seek another individual,' it then said, turning toward the appalled journalists while their cameras beamed a gruesome scene across the world. Nervous marshals and guardsmen drew their weapons while frantically consulting Washington. But the Martian just ignored them. "'I will pay for information leading me to a human named James Arnold.' Meanwhile, at almost the same moment in Gainesville— Standing over the smoldering corpse of a fiction author named Joe Haldeman, another alien said, I will now pay for information leading to Stanley Schmidt. There was no more ambiguity, no hope that Bruce Murray's death had been a fluke. We now had a general idea why the Martians had come, with a narrowly focused sense of purpose. One by one, they aimed to hunt down and kill every person whose name appeared on a list. But what list? All of those mentioned so far were Americans, a fact that offered strange reassurance elsewhere. Across the globe, near panic ebbed away, replaced with a rising sense of, this doesn't directly threaten us, interest. Accompanied, perhaps, by a kind of spectator schadenfreude, at seeing the planet's top dog face its long-deserved comeuppance from dauntingly advanced extraterrestrials. Those who had been loudly demanding establishment of an international contact agency became less shrill. World leaders now urged patience, an attitude of watching, waiting. That was fine for them. Within the borders of the United States, tension fizzled and nearly frothed over, by now, forty-seven alien creatures had dispersed from coast to coast, with nine of them unaccounted for, having vanished into some confusion of either traffic or countryside. We discovered the hard way that those photoactive wings of theirs had multiple uses. Wrapped around the body, they could suddenly go into a mode that mimicked the environs, turning the Martian almost invisible. Army Special Forces augmented the marshals now, trying to keep a wide cordon around each alien, using bullhorns, warning people to stay back. It didn't always work, though. The creatures moved fast, 
Without notice, one of them might veer toward anyone in sight, offering a handful of treasure for information or a ride. Most people ran away, but so what? Roughly one in a hundred consented. That was enough. The third, fourth, and fifth deaths occurred before two full days had passed. A dozen more of the targeted people barely left their homes in time. But always, some neighbor was willing to point helpfully in the direction they had fled. Others might shout, Collaborator! But diamonds can help overcome hurt feelings. And no one could legally stop it. Or at least nobody in authority could cite a law that fit a case like this. People, even governments, are capable of acting quickly in an emergency. A special session of Congress was called, aimed at passing a quick national security bill to close the loopholes, outlawing cooperation with the Martians, and confiscating whatever payments they made. Anyone who helped guide them to a victim could be prosecuted as an accessory. Instant polls showed huge public support, driven by disgust toward that self-serving minority among us who would cooperate in this alien death hunt, betraying their neighbors for riches. The president promised to sign the bill within 24 hours. She sent Secret Service agents to protect every person known to be a target. That's when I phoned up Dan Jensen in Senator Green's office. Dan, you've got to get me into the hearing tomorrow. I don't know, he answered. It's crazy up here on the hill. We're on war footing. The hearing is supposed to last just the morning, then we rush the bill to the floor. What's wrong? Not urgent enough? Maybe too urgent. There's something they have to know before passing that law, something I think I figured out. You think? Buddy boy, you better... I better get down there and talk to you in person tonight. Lay it out. Just do me... do us all a favor. Set aside fifteen minutes for me to speak tomorrow morning. You can cancel if I don't convince you tonight. It took some persuading, but I had that much pull. I wound up getting ten minutes. I just prayed I'd be in time. The names, I said after being sworn in, are all included on a disc that was carried to the Martian surface aboard Spirit and Opportunity the Mars Exploration Rover spacecraft, or MER, back in January of 2003. On a disk? One member of the committee asked. For what purpose? Public Relations, Senator. Arranged by the Planetary Society in collaboration with the Lego Company. A mini-DVD, so small and light, it could be added without affecting mission performance or cost. It contained educational material plus a list of space program supporters, people who signed on for the honor of having their names carried all the way to Mars. Some honor, but I don't get it. None of the footage from those rover robots showed signs of intelligent life, or any life at all. The Martians appear to be, well, extremely adaptable, Senator, as you might expect for beings that evolved in such a challenging environment. We witnessed them change shape before our eyes just after arriving, and those cape-like wings that they spread to absorb sunlight can shift from perfect black to green to intricate patterns mimicking any background. There may have been Martians in plain sight for all I know, or dwelling nearby underground. 
certainly close enough to be offended by myrrh in some way we don't yet understand. And you think this disc filled with names, it covers everybody that the aliens have asked for? So far, it's the only trait that every one of them has in common. It also explains how the Martians would have such a list in hand the moment they arrived. They must have got it directly from the disc. Interesting. That's one mystery solved, and about a hundred still unexplained, like why they seem determined to go around killing people on the list. Do you have any ideas about that, Doctor? Some possibilities come to mind. Perhaps they didn't like the idea of machines landing to spy on their planet, though a dozen earlier probes never triggered such a response. Perhaps they are angry over where the two probes landed, or, or something bad happened when they did. Anyway, the truth should be easy enough to find out. Oh, how's that? Ask them. They are traitors above all else. For the right price, I'm sure one of the Martians will explain it all in detail. The committee's chief counsel spoke up. We tried to ask. They ignore our representatives. True enough. And yet they speak to private citizens. In order to bribe them to hitch rides from traitors, or else buy directions that will help them hunt down some American, the same kind of nasty, treasonous help that we're going to outlaw. Right, exactly, and I'm here to warn you, that could be a terrible mistake. Silence filled the conference room, until the chief counsel spoke again. You... Oppose the bill currently before this committee? He sounded perplexed, so unanimous had been the support up till now. I must oppose it, since the consequences of passing such a bill could be disastrous. The senior senator from Oklahoma leaned forward, speaking softly. Could you please explain, doctor? So far we've been careful not to shoot back at the creatures— though a public majority now wants massive retaliation next time another citizen is killed. This restraint is overwhelmingly difficult to maintain. Indeed, Senator, I have been pleasantly surprised by the administration's wisdom in that regard. History warns that a weaker tribe should be cautious during first contact, especially not to let itself be provoked. Pride can be fatally expensive. So can revenge— we may have to absorb pain, a lot of it, stoically, before we're ready to demand respect. Is that why you oppose the bill, Doctor? But this proposed legislation has nothing to do with fighting back. All it will do is impose penalties on a few greedy humans to deter them from helping the aliens. If we arrest the collaborators and seize all those little piles of gold and diamonds so nobody profits— then who will step forward to help the aliens with information? It could take the creatures ages wandering around to find their victims. We'd have time to set up protection programs, offer new identities, and hide everybody on this list you told us about. How many people did you say are on it? I didn't say, Senator. A look of puzzled exasperation crossed the politician's face. Well, could you please tell us now? How many names were on those discs that Spirit and Opportunity carried to Mars? I coughed, feeling a sudden and powerful reluctance to speak. But then the news media were probably looking it up already on the web. How many? 
Um, Senator, the discs held four million names. It took a while for the sergeant-at-arms to restore order. I fretted as the clock finished ticking out my allotted ten minutes. Would they stop me before I got around to my real point? I needn't have worried. Nobody tried to usher me out of the room. All were attentive when Senator Green spoke for the first time. Four million. Why, that's more than one percent of our population. Or ten percent of those who vote— I pondered during another long silence that finally broke when Senator Long distilled the general mood. Then this may not be a matter of just a few scientists and space aficionados. It could go on and on. So it seems, I answered, though let me correct one false impression that's going around. Only by quirk of chance have the targets so far all been Americans— there are plenty of Europeans, Russians, Japanese, and other nationalities represented on the list, just a little further down. That brought a small murmur of satisfaction amid the gloom. It can be comforting when in pain not to be alone. Still, four million! Could they really mean to hunt them all down, one by one? I have no reason to think otherwise— then appeasement is out of the question. The die is cast. We are at war. I disagreed emphatically. No, Senator, we aren't at war. In fact, I doubt our Martian visitors know the true meaning of that word. But we could teach it to them, if you pass this bill. I didn't succeed at getting the legislation killed, but they agreed to wait twenty-four hours— it was enough. Late that afternoon, on the third day after the landing at Cape Canaveral, another of the Martians caught up with the person it was seeking in the suburbs of Lawrence, Kansas. Someone along the way, jumping at a chance for a little extra profit, had sold this creature a nifty little PDA with map feature and global positioning system, supplementing its already uncanny direction sense with good old human technical ingenuity. Still, it wasn't exactly a surprise when the alien reached its destination. Forewarned, the news media were already there. Though he had been alerted with plenty of time, the human quarry tried to be clever. He wasn't home when the alien showed up, but he did stay to watch from a neighbor's rooftop as a tall, green creature knocked at his front door, then broke the lock and bent over to step inside. There followed some brief crashing sounds— not exactly a rampage, but an efficient search for hiding places. All evidence so far showed that these creatures learned very fast. The Martian emerged, carrying a few scraps of paper, photos, book covers, some clippings from an album. Standing on the front porch and turning the solar collector wings on its shoulders to face the sun, it seemed to study the clippings carefully. Then, Letting the papers fall, it stepped into the street and made a circle, scanning. The man on the rooftop should have fled then, but he felt safe observing from the shadow of a neighbor's chimney. He would have been safe from any earthly hunter. This alien had better eyes than any earthly hunter. Whipping out a weapon, it swiftly and efficiently shot the poor fellow, burning a two-centimeter-wide hole straight through the back of his head. Then— Almost without pause, 
it turned to find a helpful human, someone willing to sell in. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Information about the next person in a lengthy list. Instead, within two blocks, the Martian ran into a vigilante mob. This time, bullhorn warnings from marshals and secret service agents failed to keep back the angry crowd. Armed with everything from rifles to flaming torches, neighbors of the dead man approached the tall creature and began shooting. Damn if I'm going to die for that thing, one marshal was heard saying as he joined the journalists, diving for cover. He had a first-row seat for the spectacle that followed. Quickly folding away its parasol wings, the Martians seemed to become a blur, charging toward the irate rabble, plunging into their midst, tossing people right and left. Cries of wrath transformed to pain and dread as people fled in all directions, many of them limping. In moments it was over, with the Martians striding off toward a nearby shopping mall in search of somebody more helpful. A couple of dozen people lay in its wake, clutching their sides, groaning, or staunching the flow of blood. At first glance, it looked like a slaughter. Till observers soon realized, nobody had died. It took a couple of hours for experts to study footage from a dozen cameras, scrupulously analyzing each image at slow motion. Specialists traced the source of every bullet that passed near or into the Martian's body. In each case, no matter which human fired a weapon, that shooter came away from the melee with an injury, while those who did not fire were unharmed. The most accurate suffered worst, receiving excruciating puncture wounds delivered by agile, merciless alien fingers. Nobody died, though, and we started getting the message. Though apparently unharmed, the Martian did not like to be attacked. For every assault, it had meted proportional retaliation, proportional punishment. I think I know what's going on, I told Senator Green, who stood next to the president's emergency commissioner, watching reports from Lawrence. 
You've got to give me the next shot at making contact. I had been making the same request for hours. This time, Green and the fellow from the White House looked at each other. The president's guy shrugged. All right, give it your best shot. They dropped me off a block from the Georgetown alien. We knew where it was heading because someone had just sold out the head of NASA's Advanced Projects Division, a woman whose passion for space exploration was so great that she had remained a Planetary Society member and now might pay for it with her life. She was number 14 on the Murr list. I stepped out of the government van, wired and bugged to the gills. The emergency task force could advise me through a button in one ear, listening to every word I said. Not that they expected much to be achieved this time. No other envoy had succeeded. Why should I? It came around the street corner at a lope, trailed by truckloads of marshals and reporters. Most people scattered as soon as they caught sight of the creature with its iridescent green winglets always turned sunward, though I glimpsed several individuals lingering bravely to jeer as it passed by. One or two seemed to have longing looks, as if tempted to run alongside for a while, as we had seen on TV, offering information in exchange for treasure. But this one seemed purposeful, as if it already knew what it needed, for now. Anyway, word was crisscrossing the country ever since Lawrence— the last three people to sell information had been caught and beaten by vigilantes, while police looked the other way. So the anti-collaboration bill appeared unnecessary after all. Ad hoc justice was doing the job. That made what I was about to do even more dangerous. As the alien drew near, running straight toward me, I couldn't help flashing back to that long-ago morning at the Cape. Just this Tuesday? It felt like eons, or five minutes, since I stood in shock over Bruce Murray's smoldering form. How did I talk myself into this? Prior envoys had tried all sorts of techniques, blocking a Martian's path, holding up placards, or making formal declarations in the name of humanity. Instead of doing any of these things, I stepped slightly to one side. As the creature sped past, I spoke in a low voice. You have caused me personal injury. I demand compensation. It skidded to a halt like some cartoon character, raising a creditable screech against the pavement and swiveling with uncanny agility toward me. They seem superior in nearly all ways, I thought, trying not to shake. What makes me imagine I can pull this off? The Martian towered over me, standing close enough to touch, if I dared. Those shimmering solar collectors fluttered near, looming, gorgeous, like enveloping webs. Or the wings spread by some magical bird of prey. What personal injury have I caused you? Explain. My larynx threatened to shut down as I flashed on the creature's propensity for quick violence. But I managed to croak, You must pay me. For that information. The Viridian parasols flared and shimmered. Tilting its humanoid head, the alien appeared taken aback, or at least surprised. It is not customary to pay an accuser in order to learn a grievance. If you wish to make a claim, speak. That's the problem, then, I said carefully. Our customs here must be different than yours. Talk about an understatement. <laughs> 
but the alien did not respond. Instead, it just stood there, looking down at me. I recalled how one of the members of the contact committee had described them as superintelligent, but apparently devoid of curiosity, or at least curiosity about matters human. Clearly, it was up to me to prod a reply, or else this attempt would end just like all the others, with the visitor turning contemptuously away, hurrying about its bloody business. Is the concept of cultural difference difficult for you to grasp? Your culture and people must be very old. I was guessing, of course. A shot in the dark. You are attempting to extract information without payment, it replied. An accusation, and true enough. But I shook my head. I am engaging in a sophisticated human process called conversation. Information is exchanged between individuals in larger quantities without formal negotiation over each datum. Instead, each party maintains a general sense that information flows are roughly equal overall, or beneficially reciprocal. The creature seemed to ponder for several long seconds. The photosynthetic wings drew back a little. This may explain why humans talk so much in their television and radio broadcasts. Most of the content appears syntactically useless, void of practical content, except perhaps as indicator material, tracking the value exchange process itself. A valid presumption, though rigid they weren't stupid. Nevertheless, the procedure seems crude, highly inefficient. Yes, inefficient, and yet there are advantages. I note, for example, that you have just made a free statement in reply to one of my own. Both of us offered information without striking a deal or trading explicit economic payments. In other words, you have just engaged in a conversational exchange. To the best of my knowledge, it's the first time that a Martian has done so since you people arrived. In my left ear, I heard an excited buzz of commentary from experts on the contact team as they tried to verify this. From their encouraging comments, it seemed they were happy with me. So far, I was on a good track. Notice is taken, the alien replied. I find it discomforting to engage in a process in which reciprocal value remains so inexplicit. Then, after another pause, I voluntarily offer that commentary about my discomfort, speculating that you will reciprocate by answering a question according to this vague custom of conversation. And I will reciprocate, I replied, by attempting to answer your question, assuming that the question and answer are of similarly low value. Your discomfort is, after all, of little importance to me. I will not answer high-value questions without payment. Understood. I commence with my question. This method of information exchange, this technique called conversation, is it an example of what you call a cultural difference? I concentrated hard, shaping sentences in hope that the Martian would find all this interesting enough to stay and chat a while. It is— we have had a great many cultural differences within the human species. Therefore, the notion is very familiar to us. We expect even wider cultural gaps between species from different planets. You, on the other hand, despite your great agility and impressive mental powers, appear to find the very concept of cultural difference 
difficult, even disturbing. Am I correct in concluding that you Martians have been homogenous for a long time? Another excited buzz erupted in my ear as our experts discussed this. Homogenous, similar, same, uniform, in comparison to human beings. I could almost hear the synapses, or Martian equivalents, surge and grind. This datum may be of great value to you, but I will risk that value against the vague possibility of recompense via conversation. Yes, by comparison to the young and ever-changing life-forms of Earth, my species has been optimized for a long time. Optimized? Hmm. For how long? Tension seemed to fill the tall body in front of me. This was clearly excruciatingly difficult, grappling with concepts long taken for granted. You have asked two consecutive questions. Nevertheless, I shall answer. Optimization at near perfection occurred 239 million of your years ago. The noise in my ear was positively painful as members of the contact team reacted. Surprise, consternation, but above all, joy that at last something was being learned. So far, my handler seemed happy with the way things were going. I did not expect that to last. Now, answer a question of mine, the Martian said. Explain to me how this method called conversation will help me achieve my goal on this planet. Damn if this guy wasn't single-minded. That question will be difficult to answer without knowing more about your goal. You appear to have come to Earth with a mission to kill people. I assume you have some grievance against those who were listed on the disks that were carried by the Mars Exploration Rovers. Silence. I tried again. You make no accusation against these people when you kill them, so accusations are optional. You only accuse when you want compensation, by payment of some value. But the only thing that earthlings seem able to pay with is their lives. We don't have anything else that you want. So this is all about revenge, is it? Revenge that's direct, personal. The Martian took one step back. The parasol wings flared again. Instead of answering my question, you have posed a question of your own. But, but I'm just trying to narrow down how to answer. In conversation, you first clarify, Human-style conversation appears to have no value. I will end this experiment in twenty seconds. Desperation filled me. Clearly, these creatures communicated with each other, buying and selling information by radio or some other channel our experts hadn't found. If I failed in this attempt, word would spread among Martians. Perhaps no other would stop to chat, ever. A few blocks away, the next phase of this tragedy was already under preparation, as men with heavy weapons made ready to intervene with deadly force the next time an American citizen was killed. Driven by rapidly shifting public opinion, momentum was building toward war. I couldn't let it come to that. During the last urgent seconds that I had the creature's attention, even as it started to turn away, I quickly pulled out a paper envelope and blurted, You may be right about conversation, so let's make it a business deal after all. 
I have here the locations of the first hundred people on that list, up to the minute. You could sell the info to your fellow Martians, sorted geographically, so they can hunt more efficiently than before. Moreover, I can show you how to keep getting such information, evading all attempts at interference. The screech in my left ear was so loud that I had to tear out the button speaker. I guess I must have exceeded my official authority as a negotiator. The rest of the monitoring gear followed, crushed under my foot as I watched the alien carefully. It opened one of those seamless flesh pockets, dipping into the limitless supply of nuggets and diamonds, but stopped when I waved a hand. The Martians seemed to comprehend my gesture of refusal at once. We had gone beyond such trifles. "'State your price,' it said." Time passes quickly when you're having fun. I lay on a cot, tasting blood through the broken stumps of two teeth, when word came to my jail cell that the first of my payments had arrived. Wages for selling out a fellow human, a fellow American. The first of a hundred. Possibly many more. We weren't able to move everybody in time, Senator Green said when I was finally dragged before the emergency committee. Three more were killed in the last hour, thanks to you. He expected an answer, but I had learned from the Martians. Conversation is inefficient. Any comment that I made would be superfluous. We fixed the mistake that lets you access the protection database, said the President's representative. The location of threatened individuals will be more secure. I shrugged. If you say so. We will protect our citizens. That roused me a bit, in curiosity. How? By hiding four million people? By fighting? A general pounded the table. If necessary, yes. They must be taught to respect us, our laws, and our lives. Very stirring, I answered. How's that going? The general flushed without answering. No need. In my cell, I'd watched TV footage from the slaughter in Seattle when a National Guard armored company fought in the streets with heavy weapons, battling to protect a billionaire bookseller and space aficionado from a single, lanky alien. This time, the Martian departed the Battle of Twelfth Avenue with a temporary limp. Quite an accomplishment, though several tank crews died to achieve it, along with the prominent book dealer. Proportional punishment. Twenty brave men for one briefly inconvenient wound. I hope you at least took my advice about badges, I said, wincing as one of my broken teeth twinged. The general glowered, but Senator Green nodded. The soldiers wore no identifying markings. You still haven't explained why. Why we should take advice from a collaborator, an accomplice in cold-blooded murder— interjected the fellow from the White House. His attitude reflected a keen political sense of rising public will. The beating I received upon being arrested was a mere taste of what would happen if I were released onto the street. Vigilantes would spare nothing larger than a hangnail. Why listen to me? Maybe because I'm the only one who seems to have a clue what's going on. This time, the whole committee lapsed into sullen quiet. 
you could scoop their hatred with a shovel. So, I broke the silence. Somebody had to. Will anybody explain why I'm here? Why did you send for me? Wait, I continued, holding up a hand. Let me guess the reason. They kept their word. They honor their debts. I've been paid. Tight-lipped, grudgingly, Senator Green nodded to an assistant who turned on a fancy live-access screen nearby. A new website appeared on the Internet twenty minutes ago. We can't trace the source. It contained only this video clip. The screen flickered. A glitch at our end, I figure, since Earthling network technology would seem trivial to these ancient advanced beings. When the static cleared, there stood a creature from another planet, one whose brain and form had already been optimized before our ancestors split off from dinosaurs. It spoke rapidly and with characteristic efficiency, haloed by the iridescent green fans, or wings, that fed it directly from the sun. The assistance proved helpful in accomplishing my immediate goal. I have also benefited by selling updated location information to others of my kind. Despite this, some hunters report being inconvenienced by the clever evasiveness of those they seek. It appears increasingly likely that targets are being aided by other humans. I wish to know more about non-listed humans who interfere. I will pay for information about them, their reasons for interfering, and for assistance adding their names to our list. This was my first time watching the video. Everyone else in the room must have already seen it many times. Even so, that last sentence drew a murmur of dismay. If you can help to identify those who interfere, contact me using the code words that you established the Martian continued. Meanwhile, the assistance received so far has proved valuable. Hence, I will now pay the first installment of the agreed-upon price. I felt tension all around. Despite grueling interrogation, I had refused to explain what passed between me and the alien that morning, after I tore off the monitoring devices. You asked specific questions, requesting that I post answers on the crude planetary network. I deem that your help so far merits three answers. I will post more if success continues to result from your assistance. In other words, further rewards would flow if the envelope that I handed over early this morning helped aliens to murder even more people in a long chain. Question number one. Why have I come to Earth, a barbaric and unpleasant place, in search of human beings to kill? Answer. As you surmised, the motive is vengeance, a concept which human beings appear to understand, though in typically gross and primitive manner, absent all subtlety, persistence, aesthetics, or depth. Someone of great importance to me died as a direct result of the arrival of a Mars exploration rover— under the calculus of reprisal, I seek redress from those responsible. I shall exact payment from a sufficiently large number of humans to restore balance. At present, that figure is 89,073, subject to change. It was my turn to gasp at the appalling number. Was that how small we seemed to them? Intelligent enough to be held accountable, yet not worthy of conversation bright enough to be punished, but only satisfying in large quantities. One solace 
Whatever calamity had come to Mars on that space probe, inadvertently wreaking harm, perhaps some terrestrial plague that took them by surprise, it did not slaughter millions as I had envisioned. Just forty, possibly fifty or so of those ancient ones must have died, maybe the same number as our invaders. Did each one come to avenge a single... loved one? By leaving a bloody swath of dead humans? The creature held up two fingers, an eerily human-like gesture. Second question. What form of cooperative enterprise constructed the interplanetary vessel that brought me here? Answer. Our craft was built by a collaborative association of the aggrieved. Sharing nearly identical motives, a number of us gathered, using ancient and long-dormant skills, in order to cross space, achieve vengeance, and restore balance. Such collusion is distasteful, but imperative need overcame natural aversion. It has become apparent to me that earthlings form collaborative associations with disgusting readiness, and hew to those associations rigidly like the association of four million that sent the deadly Mars Exploration Rover. This cultural difference merits study. I will pay for further information about— Stop! At my shout, the assistant tapped a key to freeze playback. On screen, the Martian remained motionless, warped slightly by video clutter. As I feared, I muttered, we're in trouble. Senator Green shook his head. Now you say that? Or do you mean things are even worse than we thought? How do you conclude? Never mind that, the White House guy growled. We want to discuss the third answer. Third answer? The next one, where the alien offers a few sentences about their space drive. That's the important one. Our physicists are all in a lather over what it says about vacuum energy and neutralizing inertia. A hundred theories are spouting all over the place with no idea how to sort them out. I shrugged. Well, what did you expect? Detailed blueprints? A few sentences were all I had earned. A murmur of disgust greeted the word. Earned. Yet they clearly felt torn, these men and women who were charged with finding a solution to humanity's worst crisis. I sympathized, but only to a point. If you want more hints, maybe even blueprints, I'm sure one Martian or another will sell them to you. Sell them? You mean like the way you bought these answers? Never! I felt too fatigued even to shrug again. If you won't, then somebody else will, now that there's a more convenient way to do business with them. Frankly, I think we'll get a better deal if we do it carefully, in small stages, keeping the price high. Play them off each other. You're talking about selling these invaders the lives of human beings, shouted the general. In exchange for knowledge we desperately need, yes, to race through a quarter billion years of catch-up. Call it a reconnaissance with moderate expected losses, general. Why, I never heard anything so monstrously pragmatic. With a sigh, I straightened, pulling my shoulders back. I had to try to get through to these people, if only in order to persuade them to send me a dentist. Senator, ladies, gentlemen, we need to ponder our own past. 
especially when European sailors and settlers arrived in Africa, Oceania, the Americas. Few native peoples came through first or second contact very well. Many perished, and our differences then were nothing compared with the gaping chasm that separates us from extraterrestrials. Who managed best among our ancestors facing those European strangers? Everyone suffered, but a few did better than average. The Japanese and Thais kept their independence and strove at great cost to catch up. The Cherokee and Iroquois carefully studied white newcomers, learning and borrowing whatever seemed to make sense. And yet, in our movies, books, and modern myths, it is always the most obstinate tribes who are portrayed as noble, admirable, clinging to every aspect of their old ways, defying the clear need for flexibility, for adaptation. If we follow their example, proudly sticking by our own standards and customs no matter what, we may nobly follow those tribes into extinction. Amid the glowering faces, one woman, an anthropology professor I had met years ago at a conference, spoke in a voice deep with gloom. Many of us already reached that conclusion. The debate now is whether it will be better to go extinct than do as you recommend. What good is surviving if we pay with our souls? I nodded. Our ancestors must have had similar conversations. In Hogan's and Wigwam's, in countless huts and palaces, from Lapland to Australia. It's an old story. Western civilization was luckier than most. But our luck has run out. I'm just glad it's not my decision. You leaders, and others like you, will make the call. I've simply laid out the choice, stark and bare. That you've done, sir. Ruthlessly. Judge me later, I snapped, when you know all the facts. It's humanity that matters now, not individuals or nations. Anyway, do you honestly think you can protect the people on that list? Say you do finally succeed at killing one of these creatures. Won't that bring more Martians, seeking countless more human lives to atone? Ask Native Americans how well that math added up. The glum spell that followed was punctuated by a sound I made, sucking at one of my broken teeth. I couldn't help it, really, though it seemed disrespectful. In fact, part of me felt glad that these people were so unlike the pitiless cliché authority figures of cinema. Instead, they seemed motivated by the highest values—human values. In my own way, Senator Green spoke again. You don't seem curious about the answer to your third question. Should I be? A technical issue, thrown in to interest scientists, the military, to show the Martians are so far ahead they'll casually trade information we find precious. Like the Dutch buying Manhattan Island for beads. It may take a great many such answers before we begin to know how little we know. Hmm. And you set it up so that now the aliens can trade information with treacherous humans via the Internet. As if someone else wouldn't have done so, within hours. Even if you shut down the net, that won't matter. They've learned not to offer baubles anymore. Nobody will sell out a neighbor for nuggets and gems that can be seized by police or vigilantes. 
But how about a new industrial process, insight to disease, an advanced machine or weapon? I've shown that information can be swapped without personal contact, using some personal code words. Soon others will catch on. How to get a few sentences of useful data from creatures who are eons ahead of us. You can't hide four million people from that kind of temptation. And now that the list is growing longer... Longer, the general mused. They add the names of those who try to thwart them. Those who help the four million. Is that why you advise us to remove all badges? It's worse, general. Much worse than that. Haven't you wondered why they came after just people on that Mars exploration rover list? Committee members looked at each other before turning back to glare at me. But I only felt the frozen presence on the big screen. Tall enigmatic, impervious, and almost perfect, optimized so very long ago that its kind craved the warmth of no hearth, nor even atmosphere, so perfect that it made its own food, living in almost pure autonomy, scarcely needing any other. How jealous I felt. What do you mean, worse? the anthropologist finally asked. I mean, they seem not to comprehend how interdependent, cooperative, and gregarious humans really are. We're individually so weak, so soft and frail, that we evolved these tendencies. We aggregate into large groups as a natural part of being what we are, who we are. So? So the notion of permanent associations, including nations and states— may be the most alien thing about us from their Martian point of view. They do know we're disgustingly cooperative. When they examined the Mer probe and found four million names, they naturally assumed that it was sent by a great big temporary consortium composed of those who signed the spacecraft. You mean that's why? So that's who they've come to kill? So it's all a mistake— what if we explain these are innocent people, space fans, sci-fi readers? They aren't responsible. Then who is responsible, Professor? Who sent spirit? Who sent opportunity and caused the death of 50 Martian demigods? Why, NASA did, with funds provided by and representing... Representing? Why, the people of the United States of Am Her voice trailed off. This time, the silence stretched on and on. Finally, I turned away. Accompanied by two guards, I retraced my steps back to the jail cell and my thoughts. I won't stay here, of course. They can't hold me. Things are moving fast and decisions will be made. Perhaps they'll be pragmatic, as the Japanese were during the Meiji era, doing whatever it took to catch up with the West as quickly and systematically as possible. The logic is impeccable, after all. If those on the Mer list are doomed anyway, perhaps we can get a best possible deal by doling them out to the aliens slowly, one by one, in exchange for information buying lessons that we need to survive. Or maybe our leaders will embrace the other course, one praised in legend and film, 
the noble path taken by so many of our ancestors when they faced similar choices. To go down fighting, defending our customs and ways, our fellow citizens, the innocent, whatever the cost. There are good arguments for choosing either course. Though, judging from those people in the committee chamber, I'll bet on nobility winning over pragmatism. How ironic that movies nearly always depict generals and statesmen as cold-blooded, viciously practical, perfect villains. But everyone in that room had been raised by the same films and legends. Underneath our modern cynical gloss, most of us are romantics, generous, courageous, capable of great sacrifice for other members of the tribe. I admire it. Of course, I'm built the same way. My sacrifice, for the sake of the tribe, was to disagree, to point out the other option. Maybe they'll realize it soon. Anyway, I'm glad it's not my call. Oh, the Martians aren't stupid. They operate under different assumptions, true, but soon, especially if we fight, they'll start to grasp how revoltingly gregarious humans really are, They'll figure out that laws and nations aren't just words that stand for temporary group contracts, but powerful chains of obligation, bonds that penetrate our tissue, bone, and sinew. Nor will it stop at the American border. Twenty nations contributed instruments to myrrh, and when you get down to subcomponents, will any of us survive once they realize that all of us are responsible? As dark night settles through the narrow window of my cell, I squint at shadows, trying for analogies, the straws that a human mind clutches when trying to fathom the strange. These Martians are like bears, I figure, powerful, autonomous, needing little from each other or the environment, coming together only for special transactions, like mating. Ultimate libertarians. Damn. From their perspective, we're like ants, almost hive beings, an unpleasant image for one like me, raised to treasure individuality. I envy and pity them. No perfect Martian will ever face the conflicts that royal me now, the regrets, or the poignant satisfaction knowing I'll be forgiven. Somebody had to do what I did, be the required Judas, offer a second option, whether or not it's chosen, the bitter, pragmatic way. It could only be someone with a number like mine, 112 on that list. Awaiting my turn, I keep hoping one thing. Get a good price for me. No handful of beads. Make it something exciting, useful, and interesting, like so many of us yearned to see from the space program. The reason we pooled so much human talent and enthusiasm, reaching for those lights that our imperfect eyes and caveman brains could barely make out, twinkling overhead. If my death, and several million more, will bring us closer to the stars, well, okay. I don't lament signing my name to a roll call of dreamers. When our human descendants get optimized, will we turn our backs to the sky as the Martians have? 
No way. We won't abandon curiosity or each other. I hope. Can't rest or sleep. I keep looking up each time there's a noise beyond the dark window, waiting for my own monster to come in its patient way with the appearance and godlike persistence of some ageless avenging angel, come to spread its dark wings over me and collect my small value in vengeance before moving on. No battle this time. They won't try hard to save me. The soldiers, scientists, and politicians charged with protecting humanity's future. Whichever course they choose, pragmatism or noble resistance, few will mourn my turn, I guess. No matter. Just get a good price for me. Make it something cool. Author's Note this creepy campfire story was begun the very night that Mars passed closest to Earth in 50,000 years, during the October 2003 planetary opposition. It is too late to remove names or add them to Myrrh. They will be on Mars by the time you read this. But the author invites you, if you dare, to join him in signing on for the next space probe. Take part by joining the Planetary Society at http colon slash slash planetary dot org. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Brins. Yes, please. And like I say, I'll put links on David's site and check out the video as well. What a stunning video. David, thank you so much for that. So, we've got a little bit of a giveaway. Yes, and I f supposed to mention it a couple of weeks ago, so apologies, Jeff. There's been a lot on my mind. But Jeff Carlson, international thriller, science fiction writer, has a, oh, he's got five audio copies of Plague Zone to give away. And, and it's through Audible as well, so it's quality narrations here. He's got five copies, so the, the only way we're going to do it is the first people to email Jeff, you know, email Jeff and... You get the free, Jeff will give you a code and you get the free Plague Zone. So, Jeff's email, this, are you ready for this? Jeff at jverse.com. Email Jeff, Jeff at jverse.com. That's J E double F at J V E R S E dot com. Get that to Jeff and you will get a free audiobook. Plague Zone. Can't be better than that. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget, SilverCon. I forgot myself. <laughs> I forgot my bloody cell. 20th of July. There's about 10 tickets left. So if you want to pop along, that would be fantastic. We'd love to see you there, to be quite honest. That would be great. Don't forget, we are shutting down the engines, going for a little hiatus after that. And we should be back, I don't know, two, three weeks after that. But it'll give you time to catch up. Don't forget, if you want to carry on, a big thank you anyway, I forgot to mention that as well, people who donated, you know, and the monthly donations, thank you to that next, last week's people who did that, that was stuff. If you want to do that and help out this old girl, that'd be fantastic. Until next week, try next week. I'd just like to say, good night from me. Will our hero 
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.